0: This Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Resgi has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in US District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect
1: who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom
0: itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth.
1: And freedom will be defended.
0: For 30 years, my next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast police the county of Cambridgeshire and soon after establishing herself as a competent, mature and effective police officer, was projected into the spotlight at Special Branch, where she undertook a myriad of different tasks to support both high-level investigations and security operations. Retired Chief Superintendent Karen Daybar is an inspirational leader, an incredible woman who has shown that neither gender, ethnicity, or a learning difficulty such as dyslexia should be barriers to a successful career in policing. Karen Daybar has left a legacy, not only to the female police officers that follow her on their own pathways to success, but in the incredibly important work she did as Acting Chief Constable in establishing the National Code of Ethics in Policing in 2013 at the request of the then Home Secretary, Theresa May. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to Series 2 of Protect and Serve. And Series 1 was extremely fun. I very much enjoyed the experience of interviewing some incredible police officers, men, women, leaders, operational staff, firearms officers, detectives. We covered just about everything. So I'm incredibly excited to kick off Series 2 of the podcast Um, with a lady who equally achieved some phenomenal things through her policing career which was established in 1984 and finished up in 2014 leading a significant project which we'll talk about a bit later in the podcast but without further ado I'd like to welcome to the podcast retired uh, detective chief superintendent Karen Daybar. Karen welcome to the podcast good evening how are you?
1: I'm very well. Good evening.
0: Karen, like every great detective on my podcast, I like to go right back to the beginning of someone's career and ask you, why
1: policing? Gosh, um, it was definitely by chance. So I had left school. I went off to college to study graphic design. But whilst there, I spent two summers um, on a programme in the States called Camp America, where you go and work on a summer camp Um, And I actually chose a agency camp on the outskirts of Chicago with underprivileged children. Um, And coming out of that after two years, I came back home and finished my degree and thought I definitely would rather work with people than be stuck behind a drawing board. The other motivation was my father, who said, you've got an overdraft as a student. You need to go and get a job. So I (laughs) duly cycled off to the job centre in Huntingdon and lo and behold, there was an advert in the window for policing. Headquarters was literally two minutes away, got the application form and the rest is history. And that's how I literally fell into policing.
0: But Let's talk about this because your family, am I right in saying your father was in the defence force? So was there a bit of a a push from mum and dad to head in that direction or is it a case of you want to do something completely different?
1: Dad was in the REF, and obviously we'd travelled a lot. And I think being a RAF baby, you sort of move around, you're constantly meeting different people. So you've just got that knack to um, fit in, meet people and get along with people. There was no particularly pressure from family. On the contrary, I already had a sister in the police force and I didn't actually tell her I was joining. It just just happened. Um, And... An interesting point about it is as a female joining the police, you could get your um, pension contributions back if you leave within five years. So I had the, the, you know, the bright idea that if I leave within five years, that's an excellent saving plan, get my pension back and disappear. But yeah, the rest is history. I did the full 30.
0: So let's talk about um, your time in Ashford, in Kent. Um, in 1984, walking through that into that training college environment as a young female black officer going in as a cadet. What was that like for you? What were the challenges that you faced in the initial, inset, in the, in the initial onset of training?
1: Uh, to be honest, I think it was doing, doing what I was told and conforming. Um, you know, I, I've got short hair and the first thing they asked me to do was cut my hair and I argued back, which was not a wise thing to do. Um, At that time in training school, you did a lot of marching, which perversely, I quite enjoyed. But I I think the biggest challenge was finding the the regimental, almost military approach to it. I did find that a challenge. You know, I'd just come out of three years of art school. So it it was very, very different. And I I wasn't the best probationer. And looking back at my report, there was comments in my reports from training school that I wasn't very committed um, not that not the brightest student etc etc so it wasn't the best start but perseverance
0: so the vocation of policing is one that is incredibly complex you know there's lots of legislation to understand and get your head around and be able to recall verbatim there's policy and procedure to be able to follow in terms of how you process certain crime reports and what you do at traffic crashes and all that all the technical stuff that goes with the vocation of operational policing in the office of constable what was the academic side of it like for you in terms of were you able to study it relatively easy and pass your exams or was it a bit of a challenge?
1: Yes, I passed all the necessary exams, but I, did, I didn't I did find it easy. Um, and, and there's a reason for that, which we'll probably come on to later mm-hmm. in the conversation. Um, but, I, you know, I'd studied at college, I'd studied at school, I'd got O-levels, A-levels, but it was an uphill struggle and I did find that I had to put extra time into it. Um, and in terms of legislation, I think... That, the understanding of legislation, because it was interesting and I could apply it to the practical application of it and the day job. So it wasn't so bad as just reading um, a piece of legislation. It, you know, my learning style was to do it, read it, read it, do it. And so I think that is how I enabled me to get through and succeed in the, the exams I took and getting through my probation.
0: It must have been an incredibly proud day for your family when you graduated and you headed off to Peterborough patrols.
1: Yes, and I, you know, I do recall it was incredibly hot. Needless to say, you know, we'd celebrated the night before, so you know, it was a it was a challenge to stand there for that time. But yeah, an incredibly excellent moment, and to come back and then go out and patrol, um, and the difference from doing a role play at a police training college and then being out on the streets of Peterborough and putting your hand up to stop a motor vehicle very very different Um, and the reality does hit you and you think yeah this is real
0: and what were some of the you know we talk about the challenges and sometimes the confrontational aspects of policing and then you know you you very much I don't think really understand the significance of those challenges and what you're going to come across for instance unexpected trauma and death and and arguments and fights between married couples which for youngsters graduating from the police can often be quite an intimidating thing to deal with was there a particular was there a particular moment after you graduated in those first few years of operational policing that you realized that it was going to offer significant challenges which were going to you know really challenge you in, in lots of different areas both physically and emotionally
1: um for me it was the the deaths. Um, believe it or not i am squeamish and when you when you turn out to a sudden death for me my way of coping was to just um, follow the process follow the procedure show compassion and understanding to the individuals and the families surrounding the person that's passed um, and then go back to the office and do the necessary paperwork Um, but you're surrounded with some rather ghoulish Um, other members of the shift that you know I remember distinctly being called up oh we've got a suicide the gentleman shot himself in the head you need to come and see this one and I said well no I don't if I'm coming there to deal with it fine but no Um, and and that's where you suddenly realize you've almost got to stand your ground against your peers and that kind of culture um, to maintain what's best for you as an individual. And yeah, they you know they took took the Mickey, but so be it. It's not it's not a sight I want to see and have in my head forever and a day just because it's it's considered um, the macho thing to do, or the thing to do to sort of you know get the tick in the box, or to show you you're, you're one of the one of the gang.
0: You know, it's, you, you talk about you know the culture there and, and standing your ground, and and, and we've spoken about a lot in the podcast about. You know, the amazing things that go in in policing, and there is an awful lot of amazing things that happen day in, day out, you know, all year round. But there are aspects of policing, if you look back in history, where policing has let down um, its officers in terms of the cultures it's created and some of the issues which have arisen. Did you experience any difficulties in your early years being a female officer from an ethnic background? Were there challenges there that you had to overcome?
1: Um, yes, and I do remember. Um around about the time, you know, post Lawrence and the formation of black um, police associations across forces, um, you, you, you suddenly realise, yes, you're different. Now, I, I was always within a county force, Cambridgeshire, um, a very, you know, a diverse area of policing within Peterborough. So you don't, I never really knew growing up in Cambridgeshire that, you know, I wasn't made to feel black. But once you arrive in the police force, you, you soon notice you're different. Um, And with the best will in the world, the organisation, you know, did its bit around understanding diversity, developing individuals, putting us on courses, etc. But I distinctly remember being put on a bus and sent off on a course to Bedfordshire. Uh, And it sticks in my mind that they literally put all the black and mixed race officers on a bus and sent us off on a course. Uh, and that sticks in my mind to this day. And there were one or two individuals, they couldn't decide were they, were they black or they were they white because they were mixed race. And it's almost like, well, what's this all about? So th- there were moments when you think, you know, could have done this a bit better. Um, and I've always worked on the basis, why are you sending me away to learn something? It, it's not me that needs fixing or it's not me that needs the understanding. Um, and that attitude did get me in trouble a few times and a few questions were asked and almost get back in your box car and you're only a probationer you need to be quiet
0: and am i right in saying that you know shortly after your period because you spent five years between 84 and 89 in operational policing in peterborough and it was almost you know that experience that you'd had in america working with young people that you wanted to kind of gravitate in that direction and you were then kind of moved across into community affairs, sort of child liaisons, you know, and sort of the child protection type work. Was that was that a natural progression for you because of your experience?
1: Um, yes and no. I think partly um, I wanted to get into child protection, that kind of arena, and with everything else you wait for the um, slot or the vacancy to come up. Um, and it was seen as a step in the right direction. And I do recall um, and the sergeant saying... She she can come in the d- department to backfill from somebody who is on loft, long-term sick. So we'll see how she gets on. Two years later, the vacancy and child protection comes up. But I was also then looking elsewhere within, in terms of specialising um, into special branch. So my career took a bit of a turn, notwithstanding my time within community fairs, as it was at the time. It was, it was brilliant. And you you get it gave me an insight into in particular how children suddenly find themselves involved in crime and it's almost generational and i find that i found that very 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 sad um and to a certain degree it still continues and i do often wonder what is the solution and i could probably name people around peterborough to this day who are the the adults who were the children of the adults we were arresting and still have ended up down that um, unfortunate path of getting involved in crime.
0: So for our listeners that um, are outside of the UK, what was community affairs about back in the 1980s?
1: So it basically was going into schools, liaising with partner agencies, missing from home inquiries, um, you know, children that were constantly ending up in custody, you'd then go and get involved in the case conference procedures for those children. So it was the sort of non-crime investigation element of all aspects related to children who were getting into um, delinquency um, and crime. So that, that was the, the context of the department, as well as crime pre- prevention Sort of matters, um, but very much working with the community and community partners.
0: So, in that role in community affairs, is, is there a particular strategy that one can implement to try and break down that generational criminality, or is it something that sadly is really quite hard to 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 get in the, get in the reeds amongst and really try to break it up? Unless you you know sadly have to take children out of dangerous environments.
1: If I knew the answer to that, I would be a very rich woman and (laughs) a very rich woman. I think we are still trying to seek the answer to that. I think there's lots of interventions and projects that go on. But sadly, there are still a lot of children that get involved in crime. So it's not an easy solution, even with um, some of the sophisticated and joined up partnership work we do today, which we weren't doing back in the 80s. um, The problem still exists.
0: You had the luxury of having... A father that was in the military and obviously was familiar with this kind of regimental type of life and the traveling and the challenges of working in public service and equally your siblings or your sister in the police were you able to kind of share some of the challenges with them and and, and kind of bounce ideas off of how, how to kind of deal and manage with difficult situations in the early part of your career was it helpful
1: Yes, um, w- without a doubt. So um, if I was to look at Cambridgeshire at the time, very few black officers. Um, so it was turned to your family, both those in the service, wider family, parents, to just have somebody to talk it through and bounce it off. Um, mm-hmm. You know, dad joined the Air Force probably in the early, probably early 60s, if not the late 50s. So went through similar challenges. So it's, you know, dad, how did you do it? What did you how did you survive and succeed because he did succeed and did get um promotion so it's taken that learning and doing what he did um keep not necessarily keep your head down because i really struggled with that but work hard be diligent um be true to yourself um and you'll and you'll get through
0: incredibly wise words Let's talk about your progression into Special Branch between 1991 and 1994 which was uh, at the commencement I believe of the first Iraq conflict. The progression into Special Branch is a very unique one. It's an incredibly almost prestigious role with a lot of history to it across the country. Tell us what Special Branch about and how did you end up there so early on in your service?
1: Headhunted, I think um, I have had to reflect on some reports that my old um, file, I did read through that yesterday and it was very much that um, the head of special branch at the time saw an individual because obviously the lots of royal visits in Cambridgeshire, they were sort of monthly occurrences. And so you sort of get picked to go and do the carrying the poses, the flowers, that sort of thing um and i think he's he he's from what i read on my report he saw somebody that was diligent discreet um pleasant interacted with individuals around but also very shrewd and asked questions problem solved um and just approached things differently so it's almost like i arrived you know even as just somebody that would help with the backup team carrying flowers, I was always coming up with ideas. Well, could we do it this way? Could we do that? So he saw that different thinking in me. And when it was time to expand the department, they had a process and myself and a colleague um, were selected. Um, And it it was fantastic. One of the big areas of business at the time was VIP protection. So for somebody that was not a tomboy, I suddenly find myself, doing firearms training, learning how to shoot a um, Glock pistol and all the tactical elements of um, using firearms. Um, But there's also the intelligence side, which really did play to my strength to just think, okay, how do we solve a problem um, in a different way and very, very discreetly?
0: One of the, you know, the special branch role from kind of what we've read and we've spoken about prior to this podcast is a really unique one full of, so much diversity in the opportunities which present themselves in terms of as you quite rightly say the challenges in terms of firearms training you know the intelligence support work that you do with the security services in identifying and, and and carrying out operational tasks discreetly and being able to feed that information back without leaving too much of a trail reflecting on the firearms section first i think we could all probably agree that back in the early 90s would have been predominantly a male dominated environment. How did you find moving into that field of work? Was it a was it an easy transition to make into that group? Was there were there challenges that you had to overcome? Is it something that you enjoyed and embraced? Tell us about that that period.
1: It was a challenge and I always love a challenge. Um as a female in particular within Cambridgeshire, they if my memory serves me right, there's I probably was the first female firearms officer. So things like guns, the size of the grip on the gun, which now they will have various sizes for women officers, body armour, the, the the dickies, the all-in-one suit that you wear for training. They were all men, all made for men. So that was interesting, to say the least. You'd go out and do training in the field. Um, and it's like, OK, well, how am I going to get all this off to go to, to the loo? So, you know, we've come a significant mm. um way forward now to accommodate female firearms officers. You know, we've made significant process, but at the time it was it was interesting. And I do remember the instructor saying, well, the first thing you're gonna have to do, Karen, is cut your nails. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure why. They're not that long. But it's almost as like it was a statement um he was making to me to make a point. And I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I'll I'll conform, but as soon as I can, I'll be growing them back, and I it won't impair my ability to shoot. You know, they weren't talons, for goodness' sake. It, so yeah, it was you... it was interesting, but I'll always I'll always take on a challenge.
0: You must look back on it fondly in terms of being able to be one of you know the the first to kind of break down those barriers because you know you're, you're demonstrating that you can achieve that gender is no barrier to 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 great success in, for instance, the firearms
1: role. Oh, abs- absolutely. Um... You know, I did one of my national courses um in a force that was it was it was a nightmare to say the least. But you you do it, you learn from it, um, you go on and succeed ultimately, but then it's the opportunity then to feed back and say, Look, you've got this wrong, you need to do something differently. Um and so and I suppose somebody has to be the person to go through the pain barrier almost. Um, to make way for others um you know I look back on my career and it was a fantastic career notwithstanding some there were some very difficult and challenging times but it was a fantastic career and I enjoyed it there were times when you know there were days and weeks and probably months where it was really tough but ultimately I enjoyed it because it, I enjoy working with people both in and outside the organization I enjoy working with a team um and attacking a problem, thinking, okay, how are we going to solve this? And that's what policing is about.
0: What were the experiences like when you're given a, when you're given your first task to carry out for the security services, knowing what that means at the end? You know who, who 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 the ultimate client is at the end of that task is is significant government infrastructure in our security services. What's that feeling like to take on an investigation inquiry? At, you know, at the height of a of a challenging environment.
1: You don't rush it. And you, you you, don't rush it and you sit and think and discuss with, you know, obviously the peers in the office, okay, how are we going to achieve this and think about where we want to be at the end, um, but in a way that is absolutely discreet. We're not leaving any trail of um, that. We've been there um, and you, you do it slowly. You do it methodically, you do it carefully um, and you do it, i suppose carefully and very very um what what word would i want to choose yeah discreetly and if it takes yeah. a week to get one piece of information and it takes a month so be it um because the, the ultimate game is that it's done covertly
0: and and then the other aspect of the special branch work is the exposure Suddenly, to high-profile individuals, and 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 no one more high-profile than Her Majesty the Queen and the Royal Family. What was that experience like to be within an arm's length of receiving flowers and bouquets from the Queen, or being within the party which is meeting the crowds and and, and going through a, a going through a meeting or a, a visit to Cambridge?
1: It, it, it's, it's it's immensely proud, but equally, you know, you've got to be discreet. Um, you, you know, you'll hear things, and you're within hearing distance and it is okay i've heard this but that's it it cannot be repeated so it's you know it's the similar traits as doing the other side of special branch work um but it is immensely proud you can go home at the end of the day and say your vip has arrived in town has left town all has gone well and i do remember my you know the first visit i can remember being the flower carrier for the queen and then very towards the end of my service the last year I was the gold commander for the Queen's visit in Cambridge was the end of my career. So I've seen it. I've seen the whole spectrum of what a VIP visit is like, you know, standing on the standing there waiting for the flowers or running the show. So, yeah, it's 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 an, it's immensely proud. Um, and it's something that with the team, with the planning, with the team that comes down from London, the officers within the force that, you know, the university or whoever's hosting you're going to put on a on a visit that is definitely worthy of some very significant vip's that came into the county
0: now those experiences and those challenges that you had between uh, 91 to 94 um resulted in your promotion to sergeant and then moving back into the general duties operational policing field back into peterborough now that's your fir- that's your first exposure to leadership, really, and to leading men and women and overseeing the custody suites, managing the processing of offenders by detectives, sometimes probably challenging their want to go and interview or speak to somebody against the rules of pace. Or what sort of challenges did you come up against in your early years as a sergeant?
1: Uh, probably two things managing underperforming officers, always a challenge, um, but necessary you know, when resources, uh, when, when you've got your resources, you need everybody to pull their weight. So it's always a challenge managing underperforming officers. Um, but doing it, you know, I always did it in a way to understand what was going on as opposed to, so more the carrot than the stick. Um, but wasn't, you know, if needed be, it would be a sit down and have a, a a a difficult conversation with the individual about where I stood, where they stood, and what we were going to do to make a difference um, and you know you've mentioned custody we pace was in the police and criminal evidence was in very strict rules about managing um, detainees in custody um and that's where you have to again stand your ground when you've got a very overzealous detective coming in and say, oh can I just have a quick chat with the prisoner?" Well, no, you can't. The rules say you can't. So you've got to wait. And if you need an urgent um, conversation with the prisoner, then go and get the necessary authority. So it was always difficult. But, you know, the the implications of getting it wrong were huge. And I do recall we had a number of officers um, through no fault of their own suddenly find themselves being investigated for perjury, um, for not applying the code of practice in terms of pace correctly and you don't really want to be in that in that space at all so it's either you know I'm responsible for this custody block play by the rules or you're not coming through the door but it, it it does make you unpopular but I think I'm a custody sergeant I'm not here to be everybody's best friend um but sometimes it got it got difficult it got it at times it was difficult it was lonely but it's the right thing to do in terms of the prisoner. And ultimately achieving justice because, you know, breaches of pace gets cases thrown out. So if you want to do the right thing by the public, then follow the rules.
0: And equally, you'd stepped into that role coming heavily qualified in so many different areas. Obviously, you would have had an arm into kind of that... um tactical firearms officer advisory role with the rank of sergeant in, in cambridgeshire so you know the skills that you brought with you from special branch during that period must have been incredible for people working around you to really kind of learn some of those you know niche skills that you'd collected yes and
1: it you know there's not much in special Branch you can talk about in terms of what you actually do but yeah. You know, just in terms of crime investigation, it's you know you sit down with an officer that's got a crime trying to investigate it. And you you sort of ask questions. Well, you know, could you think about doing it different this way, or could you consider approaching it from a different angle? So you sort of naturally guide, advise, mentor um, the the, t- the the officers who are working for you to just approach things differently, um, and and to get them to say, well, you know, you could think about this differently and still be within um, the rules and regulations. But don't just look at it f- from one one perspective. Look at it from different perspectives. So it's that different thinking, I think, I always used to share and encourage officers to do who worked with me and around me.
0: Was it, was it yourself that encouraged you then? You'd, you'd got this sort of um, whetted your appetite in terms of the first step up in leadership within policing Was that then, was it always your kind of desire to continue to climb through the ranks? Obviously, we're going to talk a bit later on about your eventual reaching the temporary rank of assistant chief constable, sitting over the top of a very important project. But was promotion something that then that was your kind of starting point? You're like, okay, I want to do more of this and I want greater
1: responsibility. Not (laughs) not really. Um, (laughs) No, not really. Um, I suppose sergeant was the natural first step. And then I do recall one or two people saying, you know, you've got the knack. You must go for inspector. Um, and they were the two hardest because the, the sergeant examining the inspector were very much read the books, go through a process. Um, Osprey at the time, which was a very, very difficult process for me in particular. Um, and it's almost like, well, if I can get to chief inspector, the chief inspector process is then an interview and a presentation, which much more suited my style you know sergeant inspector i went back into sp as a sergeant came out and it was yet yeah, get your inspector so i did that um and actually studied for it while on maternity leave so it's, i was fortunate to have the time um and then when it came to chief inspector you you suddenly look round well i found i suddenly looked round and thought oh well they've just got promoted and they've got promoted and they've got promoted it can't be that hard um mm-hmm. So you then think, yes, I'll go go for chief inspector, which I did. Um, Was very successful in that. and was told to go for superintendent later that year, which I did. Which I did. And again, was very successful then. So, you know, before you know it, you know, it's almost suddenly you're you're flying up the ranks in a very short space of time. Um, And no looking back, really. Not that I craved the power, but I suppose for me, it was more you've got the opportunity now to to really make a difference in areas within the organisation um, that needed change. And I think that's what the, the bosses within the organisation saw as well.
0: Can I ask you know a difficult question in terms of your leadership position at the first rank of sergeant in terms of being uh, a young woman? Were there challenges and resistance there from colleagues?
1: Funnily enough, not necessarily at that rank and not necessarily at inspector rank. I think the challenges came um, more chief inspector superintendent.
0: So you've gone back, just winding back the clock slightly in terms of your sergeant's position, because you moved from Peterborough back into special branch as a detective, as a substantive detective sergeant in charge of everything south of the county and we're talking about dealing with significant protests we're talking about state visits we're talking about the collation and oversight of intelligence investigations with the security service and working alongside international organizations like the federal bureau of investigations or as the the fbi what was that that period of your life in terms of going back to Special Branch at the rank of Detective Sergeant must have been some fantastic, fascinating insights and some significant challenges during that period of your career.
1: Yeah, oh, it was absolutely brilliant. And I do remember when I went for promotion, I was asked, why did you stay in Special Branch so long? And I said, because it was great fun. Um, and it was. It was hard. We worked hard. Um, don't get me wrong, but it was good fun. You know, Cambridgeshire became the number one target for animal rights activists. So week in, week out, we were running some quite significant intelligence operations, both overt and covert. You know, Cambridgeshire and the university is constantly attracting VIP visitors. So um, there was a constant stream of VIP operations to pull together. Um, And then the work that we do with the security service was ongoing. So, you know, you you didn't stop, to be fair. It was a small office. I think if memory recall, I had probably five or six detectives working with me, DCs, um, could call upon others in the rest of the county. But, you know, it's a small team, but we worked hard and we got the job done um, and very rewarding. But, yeah, it was tough. It was tough without a shadow of a doubt. The, the Chinese state visit that took place in October 1999. And again, you take the phone call, there's going to be a state visit. You think nothing of it. Yes, it's another one. You go down to London and it suddenly dawns on you the enormity of it. And, you know, t- to illustrate how difficult and how hard we worked in that five week period, I lost a stone in weight because it was just so much planning, so many meetings back and forth to London. Um, It was a big visit and it was surrounded with controversy because of the individual that was coming um, firstly into London and then into Cambridge. A gun salute of 103 rounds, a gilded carriage procession with the Queen, a state banquet. This was only part of the highest standard of welcome President Xi Jinping received by the British royal family for his state visit to the United Kingdom the first by a Chinese president in a decade. Nothing but the best for President Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader was treated to an extravagant banquet laid on by Queen Elizabeth in Buckingham Palace at the end of his first full day in the UK. And, and that would just sum up how busy we were. And I remember going to um, the chief office and saying, yes, we've got a state visit, this is who's coming, and it was, all well, crack on, Karen. So in one sense, it's very flattering that they trust you to do it, but in the, in, in the next sense, you think, oh, I could do with a bit of help here. Um, and I did reach out and had some fantastic support from the Metropolitan Police team um, and some individuals within Cambridgeshire to effectively make it happen.
0: Well, one, you know, one of the greatest challenges in terms of when you get, for instance, a state visit, as you say, a Chinese state visit in '99, there's always going to be a faction that don't want that individual to come and if they do come they're going to cause as much disruption as they possibly can you know as as how do you manage those threats you're responding and obviously trying to put out spot fires and and try to understand that threat level and 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 minimize as much as you can but as you say a lot of pressure there to deal with especially when you consider you're still relatively young in the rank of sergeant
1: yes and i think um one of the one of the reasons we were successful i believe is because working in cambridge we had a fantastic relationship with the university of cambridge we had a fantastic relationship with some of the other partners that were involved um and we had worked with um on the run-up to the visit we'd obviously met spoke to students who were both for and against it so we could get a sense and this is this is the information gathering gathering that you do as a as an as, as um, intelligence gatherer to say to the operational wing of the operation, this is what to get. These students want to protest, and this is where their stand, these students want to protest, and this is their angle. How are we going to facilitate that? So, and I think it's years of, um, some of my um, officers within Special Branch have worked in Cambridge for years. They knew everybody, so they knew who to go and speak to, um, so we could get the information we wanted to inform the policing operation um but yeah there were challenges and there's always surprises um that you've just got to tackle on the day manage on the day um but that's where you you call upon the the relationships that you've used over the years to ensure that you've got a safe and i suppose incident free operation albeit that one we did have a couple of incidents that rumbled on for months after but in the end it was a successful visit considering um the controversy of surrounding it and what had taken place in london it was a much quieter affair in cambridge than it was that, that happened in london
0: but between 1999 and 2001 Cambridge became the number one target location for animal rights activists who were targeting the Huntington Life Sciences. So for those of us that are unfamiliar with the complexities of that, what was that whole issue over? What is Huntington Life Sciences and what were the activists trying to ultimately do? I assume disruption.
1: Yeah, so Huntington Life Sciences is is a big research um, facility It's a big research company in Huntingdon, probably one of the biggest in Europe. They've got um, sites in Europe. They've got sites in the States. Um, And the animal rights activists, who had had other national targets in the country prior to Cambridge, decided that Huntingdon Life Sciences would be the national target for as long as it took to shut it down or bankrupt the force. And and as a result of that, they um, basically all the activists across the whole country would descend on the county for national days of action. Um, we had weekly protests up at the site. Um, we had, um, protests all around the county, but it was in particular the national day of actions that were particularly challenging where some of the, um, what I would call the militant hardcore activists would come to town, um, with one intention in, in mind, which was to cause mayhem and damage. And that presented a very difficult um, policing challenge for the force, because we, at the end of it, we are a small force, to be fair. Um, so as the both covert and over-intelligence gathering is was critical to inform how they were going to police those operations, to know who was coming. You know, we'd have active activists coming from um Bristol, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, these These were the hardcore, London, these were the hardcore lot that would arrive in town and you'd think, where are they? Because they could move faster than we could move. And suddenly you find they're trashing a, a research place in down in Cambridge or they're, you know, attacking the front of somebody, a staff, member of staff's house. Um, it was a difficult time. And how we didn't lose life, I don't know, because they were firebombing front of people's homes they were following people home from work they were in intimidation um threats the director of the company got beat up at his home you know this was serious organized crime um taking place week in week out in the county of cambridgeshire it was crippling
0: and and so, so you in any way shape or form on the ground operationally trying to observe the behaviors trying to infiltrate these nefarious groups that are causing this disruption or is 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 your role in the capacity that you're in very much in the managerial space at the back just kind of overseeing the information flow that's coming in and assessing kind of what you need to do with it and where it needs to flow to whether it's to public order policing whether it's through to CIB units what's your proactive role in that capacity?
1: Right. So our role within special branch and also working in collaboration with Force Intelligence Bureau was to gather whatever information and intelligence we can, we could to inform the policing operation. And we would do that week in, week out. We would liaise with other forces. We had a whole network of communication with other special branches, other FIB, um The Metropolitan Police London. So it basically was week in, week out, find out as much intelligence to know who's coming, what are they going to do, and how are we going to respond to that in terms of policing. And then on the day of events, we would run what was called an intelligence cell um, to receive and disseminate dynamic intelligence. So a spotter would say, this vehicle's just appeared on the site down in Cambridge, we'd feed that into the ops and they would then say, okay, what do we need to do with that? So on the day we would be a dynamic intelligence conduit. Um, but in between the big process, the big protests, we would then gather, develop, evolve, be proactive in seeking intelligence, as well as gathering the re- in, reactive intelligence to inform the operational side. This is what you're going to get. This is the sort of numbers. These are the sort of individuals you're going to get coming. Um, What are we going to do in terms of policing it, but also how are we going to disrupt some of it? So if we know that a a van's coming from Manchester, can we find a way to disrupt that so they don't get into the county and cause us problems? And they were very, to be fair, they were very sophisticated. And then they started to arrive in Cambridgeshire and then suddenly you find they're in Hertfordshire. So we had to expand that intelligence capacity to a not just a fourth level, but a regional level and at times national because you just didn't know where they were going to turn up. And so I used to find on the day I'd run an intelligence cell at headquarters with special branch officers from the region sitting in the room because that was the best way to manage it and then feed to Gold, who would be the commander on the day, whatever intelligence we, we had for goal to make decisions about where to deploy their resources, um, to protect, to arrest whatever the whatever they needed to do, we would be providing the intelligence to do that.
0: You know, we're still looking at a period in time where we're kind of four, five, six years even away from the evolution of social media. So really, you know, often these groups communicate their their messaging and and create groups and you've got messages flying around on WhatsApp and TikTok and Instagram, all these social media platforms that are, you know, just everywhere today in terms of the ability to communicate very quickly as to where they're going or what disruption they want to cause. Obviously, you're relying heavily on your ground source work and kind of your observations to be able to get get a good sight pictures to where these groups are going, I assume.
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, gosh, I dread to think how we would do it now. And I'm glad I'm not in p- policing night to try and do it with all the social media. So back, back in the day, to use that quote, it very much was telephone um, pages uh, were the thing that that we used and they used but it basically it was telephones you know they had a network of telephones we did um we would have spotters and in the crowd and would say yeah I've just seen this person that person that person so we know there's going to be um fun and games um but you very much were just reliant on telephone and pages pretty much yeah and it and yeah it, it, it wasn't a it wasn't easy to keep ahead of them. It, it took the, the skills and abilities of a whole network of individuals, both within Special Branch, but within Force Intelligence Bureau, not just Cambridgeshire, but also the region um, and nationally. And nationally, because some of these people were coming down from Manchester, Wales, you know, the Swansea crew, as we called them. They were coming from all over. So it, it is where you then have to coordinate and almost step back. Um, step back and think okay what are we trying to achieve how are we going to achieve it who do we need who do we need on the ground who do we need in the intelligence cell and who else out there across the country and other police forces do we need to tap into and that very you know my phone was constantly ringing constantly ringing um, in particular on days of operations because it's then how do you coordinate it who do you pipe it through and you know it couldn't all come through me and that's where you have your team around you to say, right, you're responsible for that. You're responsible for that. Um, let's go. And we always used to end the day with a cup of tea and donuts and think, yeah, we're <laughs> exhausted. But we've done it. We've done it.
0: You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Chief Superintendent Karen Deber. In part two, Karen and I discussed the moment and she was informed that some of the most precious and historically important Chinese jade items had been stolen from the Cambridge Museum. We discuss the pressures that come with such an investigation of significance, which require a delicate communication between stakeholders and an ability to shield the investigating team so they can do their job and find the culprits.
1: What was described at the time then as a level two investigation um, involving a number of forces because of a serious and organised crime group that was um, targeting high-value artifacts from museums across the country
0: all this and more next on protect and serve protect and serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by oliver lawrence research and questions by oliver lawrence and robert Win Stanley. produced edited and sound designed by jack lawrence